Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's with us as well. And we all have a nice bit of hay sticking out of our teeth. Mm-hmm. Got a hat on. Mm-hmm. It's a derby. It doesn't quite fit right, <laughs> but it's still a hat. And I'm wearing overalls with nothing underneath and no shoes and socks. Have I told you my uh, Olin Mills story? No. <laughs> I can't not. Uh, when I lost my two front teeth, mm-hmm. my mom promptly took me to Olin Mills. And there is a picture in existence. I'll try and find it and put it on my Instagram. Um, okay. Of me in front of a like a lazy river scene or a lake or something <laughs> with uh, overall shorts uh-huh. and, uh-huh. you know, cut off overalls, I guess. Nothing else on, no shirt, no shoes. Wow. And like, uh, I, I'll have to see it. I feel like I had like a cane pole and maybe a straw hat. <laughs> Jeez. Did they did they have like the uh, the engraving in Stone Mountain in, as the background? Uh, no, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, it was straight up cosplay. It's very embarrassing, but I'll see if I can find that and throw it up on uh, Chuck yeah. the Podcaster Instagram. Yeah. You should, Chuck. I think that would really garner some likes. <laughs> I've, I've been putting a few old pictures up there every now and then. It's fun. That's very cute. Um, so I guess you're saying you're, we're talking about wearing nothing but overalls because we're talking about farming, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that picture basically, I learned all I needed to know about farming that day. <laughs> yeah, which is, I'm not cut out for it. Not cut out for it. I am cut out to be photographed for money. Whoa. Um, That was me doing my impression of you. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't get paid. Uh, Yeah, I guess that's the opposite happened. Your mom paid somebody to take pictures Mm -hmm. of you. Regardless, um, none of that really happens in farming. Maybe people running around with overalls on probably have something underneath the overalls. But for the most part, this is a gross misconception of of what farming is, especially now that I've done some research on the current state of farming – we're pretty far from the whole idea of people running around with hay in their in their mouths and wearing overalls and, and nothing but. Sure. I mean, well, if, it depends on who you are. Like, have you ever seen, uh, and I've talked about it before, the documentary The Biggest Little Farm? Yeah, I think you have talked about that. I don't remember what episode it was in, though. And we'll get to that. That's coming up on the, the last part of this episode about agroecology, but mm-hmm. – they, those are people that are adherents of bringing it back to what farming used to be, which was ecologically sound, harmonious with nature, that kind of thing. Right, which makes a tremendous amount of sense. But we'll see if that's even possible in the future. Because here's the thing. <clears throat> There's a huge um, boom in demand for agriculture that we are on the precipice of. Actually, I guess you could make a pretty good case that we're in the midst of it right now. Um, By the year 2050, there's a predicted somewhere around 9 to 10 billion. That's a pretty big gap. But let's say 9 to 10 billion people are expected to be running around on planet Earth, right? Yeah. And all those people are going to need to be fed. But the thing is, is we're not exactly sure how we're going to reach 
that increased demand because there is a um, study by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN that said that we're basically going to have to increase food production um, compared to 2007 levels by 70% to feed all those people. If that's, if that's if we hit the low end, the 9 billion um, in population by 2050. Yeah, and you mentioned agriculture. Um, we're also talking meat and protein because not only is the population increasing, but uh, income is on the rise worldwide, especially in developing countries. Yeah. And as you are a developing country that gets a little more money in your pocket as individuals, you want to eat more meat and protein. So um, I think they said global meat consumption is going to rise by about 70% by 2050 as well. Yeah, and when you're talking about meat um, consumption, as far as agriculture goes, like you're talking about agriculture times two, because Mm -hmm. not only do you have to use all those inputs to grow the the cattle themselves, the livestock themselves, so um, you can eat them. You have to feed them to get them ready to be eaten, right? So you have to grow the food to feed to the cattle that you're going to grow, that you're going to eventually eat. So there's a lot of agriculture that's going to have to be going on. Um, but here's the thing. Agriculture has handled this before. Yeah, there was a time, well, you and I have talked about countless times, um, the Green Revolution. Back in the, the early, mid-20th century, there were a lot of people saying, um, we're not exactly sure that agriculture is going to be able to keep pace with the growing population. And we think probably about a billion people are going to starve. And that may have happened. We, we'll never know. But we know that it didn't happen thanks to the Green Revolution that was hastened by scientists like Norman Borlaug. Yeah. I mean, We've been talking about that guy for years. Yeah. And the irony of the Green Revolution is, is today's terminology, you might think that has something to do with um, environmentally sound practices. It was nope. kind of the opposite of that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, they meant green just like a lot of plants. Uh, It was really harmful to the environment. It did feed a lot of people. And there's a lot of mixed mixed reviews on Yelp about the Green Revolution. (laughs) I guess uh, that's an easier way to say controversy. Uh, Because what happened is a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions that we see uh, in the world today come from food production. Uh, We've talked about methane coming from uh, cow poots. Mm-hmm. Before we've talked it's about a big problem, it's a real big problem. We, we've talked about deforestation, um, obviously transportation, getting this food and transporting it. You know, because the idea we kind of went away from the idea of local farms feeding regions yeah. into shipping food across the globe if we need to. Right, and that's just a lot of pollution. Uh, I think raising livestock and fish accounts for about thirty-one percent of agriculture's uh, greenhouse emissions with livestock being about 25% of that. Yeah. So this whole so we've we've reached this an inflection point that really resembles the last inflection point where okay, we're about to have a big increase in population, mm-hmm. we need to make sure that agriculture can keep up with food production to feed everybody or else we're going to have big problems. But this time there's an added twist in that we know the last thing we did kind of wrecked the environment. So now we have to figure out, okay, how are we going to meet this challenge this time without further wrecking the environment and then maybe even figure out a way to um, help the environment through food production? That's kind of where we're at right now. And agriculture has gone through different iterations. And right now, supposedly, we're in 
Agriculture 3.0. And what everybody's trying to figure out is what comes next. What's Agriculture 4.0? Yeah, one uh, 1.0. You say dot? Yeah. Okay. Uh, 1.0 was from Neolithic to the 1920s. So that was, boy, that had a good long run, didn't it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good long stretch. <laughs> a very good long stretch. But that included a lot of labor from uh, human hands and animal hooves. Uh, 2.0 was that green revolution we were talking about. 3.0 was about 10 or 11 years ago when big data kind of came in mm-hmm. uh, to help maximize yields and it's uh, they're saying like 4.0 needs to start happening now and sort of is. Yeah. We're just not exactly sure what the final iteration is going to look like. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff that's going on in 3.0 is going to make an appearance in 4.0, but it's going to be dot. <laughs> that's a way to say it. Some people is it say really? point. So yeah, of course. Although it reminds me, have you watched Cobra Kai? Uh, we watched the first like four or five episodes, and then we're like, I get it. I'm done. Yeah. Same here. Um, but that one where uh, Johnny's handing out flyers for his new website, he's like, check out this cool website, <laughs> HTTP <laughs> colon slash slash www period Cobra Kai period com. He just spelled it out while he was handing out a flyer, but he says period. He didn't even say dot. That's really funny. Well, two yeah. period, oh, three period. Oh. I like that better. <laughs> right. He, uh, he was, that was great. Yeah, it was a great premise that they really pulled off for a little while there. So now whenever you say two dot oh, I'll say, do you have a problem, Mr. Clark? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'll say, uh, no mercy? No mercy. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's the new response to that question, okay? But you don't say it like that. You don't go, no mercy? Oh, you don't? <laughs> you gotta be commanding. How shall I say it, director? <laughs> no mercy. Uh, okay, let me try that. Okay, <laughs> okay <I'm> ready. <clears throat> no mercy. <laughs> Very intimidating. Thank you. <laughs> Where were we? We were talking about what 4.0 is going to look like. Yeah, because here's the deal. Uh Farmers themselves, the human beings, are getting older. Mm-hmm. Um, farmers over 65 years old outnumber uh, those under 45 years old by two to one. Yeah. Or actually, a little more than. 2.1 to one. <laughs> 2.1 to one. No, those are colons, my friend. No, there's a dot. 2.1 oh, dot dot colon one. Colon one. Oh, man. <laughs> I have a feeling this is going to happen. Yeah. Um, so one of the first kind of things that people think may happen and that we're already seeing some is consolidation of farms instead of a lot of medium to small size farms how about fewer really big farms and you know that's already kind of been happening yeah and like in a normal industry let's say the kazoo manufacturing industry if like the kazoo makers were way old and there weren't very many young kazoo makers. That wouldn't fare very well for the kazoo industry, but mm-hmm. no one would really care. We wouldn't miss kazoos all that much. We'd be mm-hmm. okay. Farming does not really fall within that same category as kazoos. Like, we need food. So rather than farming just going away, they're just going to figure out how to consolidate it with fewer younger farmers with bigger farms under their belt. Right, which, you know, if you think there's fewer farmers, so you consolidate the farms, that makes sense. But you're like, you still need people mm-hmm. because these farmers are getting older and ostensibly, you know, farm hands are getting older as well. 
But here's where uh, four dot oh four period O comes in <laughs> is robots, as John Hodgman would say. Yeah. Oh man, it, I didn't hear it in any other way every time I read it. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of inefficiencies in <clears throat> traditional farming with farm hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just one example is when you fertilize an area. You you know you can fertilize like a plat, but you fertilize that whole plat. Right. If there's a part of that plat that doesn't need fertilizing, it's probably going to get fertilized anyway just because, you know, they just run the fertilizer over that area. Right, exactly. It's just that's just what is the most efficient. And as we'll see, like, that's a, that's a real problem. That's sad that that's the current way to do it. But that's conventional farming practices. You just fertilize the whole field and go on and do something else because there's a million other things that need to be done as well. Yeah. But one of the things um, that's going to be uh, kind of saved in that way by by robots is um, they're going to take these different steps that are involved in um, farm work and kind of um, break them down into uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Chuck? Where where you know? Oh, specialties. Yeah. So a robot specializes in a certain task or whatever. And because you'll have a bunch of different robots, say, doing the same task, they'll be able to kind of give more personal tailored care to the to the plant. Say, like, some plants need fertilizer. Those plants will get fertilizer. A plant doesn't need fertilizer. It's not going to get fertilizer. And that's going to save a lot of um, inputs is kind of what you talk about when you're in talking agriculture, um, which kind of is generally a good thing, not just financially, but when it comes to the environment, as we'll see. Yeah, and, you know, you think about a tractor that requires mm-hmm. a human to drive that tractor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they already have tractors that can drive themselves uh, with GPS accuracy involved. And, you know, that's been going on for a little while now. And the idea, I think, is, um, and, you know, some of these tractors are something called the Lettuce Bot, which is kind of cool, right? where you basically have a tractor, at least that's sort of the, the current iteration, and on the back of that tractor is a big row of, uh, I mean, we call them robots. It, it's not like, you know, George Jetson type of stuff. <laughs> a, a robot is, just means it's a mechanical you know, automated system. Right. It's not, they're not looking for a husband like Rosie. (laughs) So the lettuce bot is pulled along behind the tractor and it's got, you know, just a big row of little robots that can do everything from um, kind of custom fertilization to Mm -hmm. picking out a weed uh, using the same technology that they use in facial recognition. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, a ragweed or something. Let's get rid of just that weed instead of like, let's just spray the whole field with Roundup or whatever. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, it's going to increase efficiencies. And I think that's the first iteration. And what they're looking at in the future is instead of a even a big tractor that still costs a lot of money. Yeah, like um, hundreds of thousands oh, of yeah. dollars for a new tractor. I think, like, it doesn't really dawn on city slickers uh-huh. how <laughs> incredibly expensive farm equipment is. Yeah, those big, big tractors. Not like your sort of fun tractor. No, not a fun tractor. Sure, that's like 50 grand. Who cares? But like a really big tractor. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Um, So I think the idea is, or at least what I saw, there's conceptual drawings of smaller uh, robot tractors that are, I don't know, it looked like the size of like a a six-foot folding table or something. Yeah. Just kind of going over like a row of lettuce, like it's it's in charge of that one row probably. 
Yeah, but what I wonder is how expensive are those, and do you have to get 50 of those to equal one tractor, and how does it suss out financially? I mean, I'm sure that, like, there's a maximum number that you would possibly need or else you're like, I have more than I can use. Right. And then you ha- you have a, a farm that, like, doesn't make quite as much money as another farm, so they make do with half the number of robots. And that maybe they have to supplement that with humans or whatever. Um, or it takes longer for that to be done or they can grow less right. lettuce. But I'm sure that, like, there's there, – from what I read, there's a price point where – like having robots is going to be financially better. way better yeah. than having to sink hun- uh, f- several hundred grand into a new tractor, even like 150 grand for a used tractor. And then the other thing, and this is really important too, number one, you don't need a human to drive these things, which frees the human up to do other things, or you don't have to pay the human anymore, so that's right. going to save you some money. And then secondly, um, if one of those robots breaks down, yeah, th- you can still work all the other rows. If the tractor breaks down, you're you're done. You you have to wait until the tractor's fixed and then all of that work has to wait. This is just one single say row that isn't getting attended to right then while that one robot's broken down. So that's a huge advantage right there. Yeah, and you can just tell robot number 2 to scoot over and cover the ground that robot number 1 is missing. Exactly. And he's like, "I got to pull a double." <laughs> say, "Shut up, you're a machine. You can't talk." Uh, the other thing robots can potentially do is harvest. Uh, harvesting is very labor-intensive, and it's also kind of inefficient, especially when it comes to something like um, maybe like strawberries, mm-hmm. which you harvest one time during the year, and you know there there's still a little bit of leeway in there. Like it's an, it's not an exact science in that some of those plants will have ripe fruit before you go to harvest, and it'll rot and drop off. Some of them may need to wait a little bit and ripen afterward. So you're wasting a lot of fruit there on the ground. And robot harvesters would just constantly kind of patrol these rows of plants and harvest the berries when they're ready to be harvested. Right, which would make a lot more money for the farmers who are growing that stuff. It's pretty, pretty awesome. And then as we kind of evolve further and further along in our technology, um, and we finally reach the capability of nanotechnology, one of the things that they uh, are hoping that nanobots, which are currently just hypothetical robots on the scale of um, like a strand of DNA or an atom or something, they'll be able to manipulate matter about um, like on that scale. So what they're hoping for is um, with agriculture, nanobots will eventually be able to deliver nutrients directly to the roots of a plant like right when it needs it, not not from some human saying like, hey, nanobot, go go take this nutrient, this little bit of nitrogen over to that plant right there. It will be all of this stuff will be guided <laughs> and directed by computers that are paying attention to the plants through sensors and then directing the nanobots to go take this nutrient to this particular plant because it needs it right now. And this kind of this kind of attention, this tailored individualized attention is what's called precision farming. And that seems to be something that's looming on the horizon that will be a big part of for, for period O. Yeah, I think the nano is like serious future farming. Right. Uh, when we get to that point. But a lot of this stuff <clears throat> is on the imminent horizon. Um, nutrient waste is a really big deal and a big problem. Yeah. Uh, I think about 60% of fertilizer that you apply to a field is lost to runoff. So there's a big cost uh, factor there that you're losing. And it just wreaks havoc on 
uh, watersheds that are nearby, which we talked about a little bit in the watershed episode, and fertilizer uh, production, and then transporting that where you need it is a big, big part of CO2 emissions. Uh, I think 5 to 11 kilograms of CO2 are emitted through the life, sty- uh, life cycle of one keg, oh, I'm sorry, one kilogram, or a kegger. A <laughs> keg, tap a keg of that fertilizer, man. Keg stand. Uh, <laughs> one kilogram of fertilizer. And once you fertilize the plant, uh, it gets in that soil, and these microbes you know, have to convert that fertilizer <laughs> into something that's useful. And when it does that, it emits uh, NO2, or I'm sorry, N2O, nitrous mm-hmm. oxide. Mm-hmm. And that's number three behind CO2 and methane is a big problem gas. Right. So there's a lot to be saved by by cutting down on that 60% of waste fertilizer. A lot of stuff would be helped by that. And the more you can precisely tailor agriculture, um, the less waste you're going to have. And I would say that um, for anybody who's interested in hearing how colossally wrong deploying nanobots into cropland could go, I would direct you to um, my 10-part series, The End of the World with Josh Clark, <laughs> yeah. specifically the AI episode. It's pretty good, kind of eye-opening. I think that's my favorite one, actually. Oh, thanks, Chuck. All right, so let's take a break, and okay. uh, we'll come back and talk about big data right after this. Okay, we're back, and we're talking about Chuck. Big data and <laughs> <That's> <laughs> agriculture. How say it. Three period O, <laughs> right. which was already uh, or is already using a lot of data. Um, we talked about the GPS guided tractors that have been around for a while. Um, they do use things like drones and satellites to get like literal big pictures of farms that can be mm-hmm. really useful mm-hmm. um, in determining like areas that are patchy or dry or, hey, this looks ready for harvest. But they're going to bring uh, LIDAR into the mix, which is something I know we've talked about before, L-I-D-A-R. Mm-hmm. When did we talk I, about that? I don't radar? know. It might have been it, – it's used most famously for um, mapping dense jungled ruins. Um like, okay. I was reading about it in this book called The Lost City of the Monkey God by Douglas Preston, Whoa. which I actually heard about in researching our episode on Fen Treasure because Douglas Preston was the friend of Forrest Fen who um, vouched for having seen the treasure in person before oh, in his, that guy. his closet. Yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, that book sounds pretty interesting. I went and read it, and it's really interesting. But he talks a lot about LIDAR being used to to map these 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 ruins that have been overgrown by jungle that you normally would never be able to see overhead, but the lidar um, is able to basically get beams of lasers through the breaks and like leaves and all that in the canopy yeah. to hit the ground below and then bounce back up, and so you get a picture of the understory too, which would come in handy big time for for crops, especially tall crops that are grown closely together, like say corn. Right. So you bundle all that together in a handy little uh, app for Mr. Future Farmer mm-hmm. and Mrs. Future Farmer or Ms. Future Farmer mm-hmm. or Miss Future Farmer or Dr. Or, Future Farmer. Or Future Farmer they. 
or they, the future farmers of right, America. Right, that's, that's great. So, I think we covered all the bases. I think so. Um, so you have an app there, and uh, machine learning becomes more intelligent. Uh, mm-hmm. The Internet of Things kind of gets a little more robust. And then you have farmers that don't have to constantly make these tiny little decisions, these micro decisions that they have to make every day about keeping their farm healthy. Right. They can kind of rely on this AI technology to figure it out and do it for them. Uh, and I guess they can spend their time building future weapons to fight the eventual uh, robot uprising. <laughs> That's right. But, I mean, like, think about it. All of this stuff is just using things that are popping up in other sectors right now. Yeah. Machine learning, um, sensors that are connected to the Internet of Things, and then integration of all this stuff that um, to oversee this so that the farmer doesn't have to make these decisions. And when you combine all this stuff together, you have, like, a farm that could be humming along um, just at absolute peak performance with minimal inputs that mm-hmm. are delivered just at just the right time and just the right amount with minimal waste, um, with the farmer having to make minimal decisions. And if you take this to its, you know, eventual conclusion, I mean, the, the there won't be like young farmers running in, you know, huge farms. It'll be like somebody who owns the farm, but really it's like an AI that's overseeing the entire farm, communicating with everything through the Internet of Things, directing this nanobot over there, um, this lettuce bot over here. And then potentially, as we grow as a um, an advanced society, there mm-hmm. may just be one AI that we, re- we rely on to run all the farms everywhere around the world and then handle distribution and all of that stuff. So, I don't know. Maybe that's Agriculture 5.0. Who knows? Maybe we'll never get there. There's some people that certainly hope we, that's not the direction we go, but we'll, we'll talk about them in a little bit. Yeah, like if you're screaming right now how awful this sounds, we'll, we'll get to you later. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. um, another part of 4.0 is um, trying to grow crops where it doesn't seem like you should be able to grow crops. Yeah, that's and a big one. Of, uh, the desert is obviously one of those places. Uh, Saudis are already investing a lot in trying to um, figure out the uh, genomic codes or genomic? Genomic. Um, I think both work. One seems British. Well, it's a genome, so it's probably genomic. Gem- gen- genomic. That's how the British would say it. <laughs> the genomic codes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, of these plants that can withstand the desert conditions yeah. and figure out how to grow stuff there. And this is kind of where we uh, wander gently into GMOs, which I think we have been dodging this one as a full topic for a while. We need to do it. We, we should we at some point it. because yeah. it is very controversial. It has a bad rap. Some people say rightfully so it has a bad rap. Uh, I think about 35% of Americans say they think GMOs um, are safe to eat, which is, you know, pretty, pretty decent minority there. Yeah. Uh, science says that they are safe to eat, but for all this sort of bluster about GMOs, they haven't really done a lot with GMOs yet, except for a couple of, a few little kind of dirty underhanded things. Well, yeah, like, um, creating patented, um, seeds that grow plants that don't produce more seeds, so farmers are forced to buy seeds every single year. Boo. Yeah, that was a big one. There's another one that only responds or responds best to a specific brand of pesticide. 
Um, so you have to buy that brand of pesticide, which happens to be manufactured by the same company that owns the patent on the plant. Boo. It's kind of shady stuff like that. The the thing is, it's not like that's all they've tried to do. No. They've also tried to have breakthroughs in, you know, um, like plants that can withstand like horrible droughts. And they haven't been able to break through in that, that sense. Or plants that, you know, produce double the yield with minimal inputs. They haven't had that breakthrough. That doesn't mean they're not going to break through, that there won't be huge advances in plant science. But even if we do reach that point, like there's going to have to also be like a public information campaign that basically says like, this stuff will not mutate your children. It's safe to eat. It won't make you glow. And there is definitely an enormous amount of fear of science from what I can tell. Yeah. involved in GMOs. I haven't done the research yet, so my opinion might change when we actually do the episode. But from the minimal research I did on it, it seems like a, a fear of science. And that as far as science is concerned, it's it's everything we know about it, it's, it's safe to eat. Um, I don't know. That will remain to be seen. Let me do some more research first before you quote me on that. Yeah, and I think part of the bad rap, too, is just like we were talking about the, the couple of three uses mm-hmm. so far that have allowed certain companies to really yeah. uh, take advantage of the situation. Let's just say. Yeah, it's not like giant mega corporations have, you know, garnered a lot of trust from the general public over the years and, in fact, <laughs> right. have squandered it pretty, pretty uh, efficiently, actually. Uh, so, seawater farming is another thing on the horizon. Um, and there are a couple of iterations of that, uh, one of which is actually using seawater uh, to farm. And when we're not talking about spraying plants, obviously, we're talking like farming shrimp, <laughs> things that <laughs> like seawater. Why isn't this working? <laughs> it's like um, idiocracy where they were using yeah, Gatorade exactly. to water the plants. <laughs> um, yeah, like growing shrimp, farming shrimp, um, because that protein demand that we were talking about as, as developing nations get more money. Yeah. And they're going to they're gonna want more shrimp. I'll eat more shrimp. Remember when you were allergic to shrimp? Yes, and I was like, I am not going to spend the rest of my life allergic to shrimp. And you figured it out sort of, right? I handled it. Um, There's a Japanese snack called shrimp chips, and they're like little fried, kind of like French fries, but they're crispy um, chips, and they're dusted with shrimp flavoring that include shrimp. And I just kind of immunotherapied or therapized myself, I immunized them, myself to them, to shrimp, so that I could eat them again, and it worked. You know, we should quickly thank our uh, scallop buddy. Oh, I think that's a great idea, man. So Since we're on huge, seafood. <laughs> huge, huge thanks to our pal Togue Braun, who just hooked us up, man. I mean, hooked us up with some amazing scallops. From Maine. Yes, fresh ones. They have been in the in the water like the day before we got them, I believe, right? Yes, it was very fresh, and uh, I think her boat is the Down East Day Boat out of Maine. That's her company for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can yeah. you can order this stuff, and like you can get the best scallops in the world sent right to your door very quickly. And boy, were they good! I mean, they were so fresh, dude. That the first two, three, all right, seventeen scallops I ate were raw. <laughs> like oh, I did just you ate really? them. I ate them raw. They were amazing. Yeah, it was. It's really good. So I strongly recommend them too. Hats off. Thanks a lot, Togue. I'm not the biggest raw scallop person, but um, there was a lot of bu- butter and garlic involved in my scene. Yeah, and they cooked up so nicely, didn't so they? So perfectly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for that uh, diversion since we were talking shellfish. But, yeah, farming shrimp, 
for seawater farming. And another is where they actually have greenhouses built that will use seawater that evaporate uh, the salt out of it into fresh water. They can sell that salt, which is great, and then have that great, delicious fresh water to irrigate their crops. Right. And then um, land use is a big problem, too. A lot of people are like, we're running out of land. We need it to live on and do other stuff on. Some people have said, well, how about this? We'll just grow stuff indoors vertically rather than outdoors horizontally. Yeah. And I actually have a friend who's engaged in this endeavor up in Jersey. He, he broke his teeth, my friend Matt. Um, he broke his teeth, not literally, but he, he gained experience working on space lettuce for NASA. Um, like he's, he's cut a, his he's teeth, a, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't sound right. He cut his teeth. Oh, um, and he's an expert in um, like the like light spectrums, like artificial light spectrums to grow plants in space. It's pretty awesome. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So, hey, Matt. Should we take another break and then talk about the other, other side of the coin here? Hold on. Let me think. <laughs> yes. We'll be right back. So if we were talking about all the benefits of consolidation of farms, mm-hmm. uh, bigger farms, automation of farms, mm-hmm. future farming, there is another group of people that have been screaming for years, we don't want to go that way. We should go back to to the – not the Neolithic necessary, but <laughs> we should go back to one period of – and practice agroecology. Right. Uh, and that's what I was, that documentary I was talking about, The Biggest Little Farm, these people that move from L.A. to very impossibly, or I guess improbably, start their own farm where mm-hmm. everything lives in harmony. There's livestock and there's wild animals and there's pests that they say are beneficial that they let live. And they really have tried to figure out this idea that, you know, you can have a small farm that feeds people locally with giving people fresh food and not transporting it halfway across the country or the world. And that is the way forward, not what we're heading toward with 4.0. Yeah, people who are proponents of agroecology are looking at the other proposals for 4.0 and they're like, you're talking about genetically modifying plants so you can grow them in the desert. Do you really not see that we've Like, we've really lost our way here. Like, let's figure out something else. And they're saying, like, look, you know, we've really tried to – we tried this Green Revolution, which basically the – a good definition I saw for the Green Revolution is where you take um, ecosystem services, which is like natural pest control, like predatory insects, Mm -hmm. or the natural nutrient cycle, um, and you you manipulate them. You – you create an artificial version of it that you can control a lot more easily and you use the heck out of it to grow the heck out of some plants. That's the green revolution. They're like, we tried this. It worked for a little while, but now we know for sure that it is really harmful to the environment. So we need to dial that back, not double down on it. And that's um, that's kind of, that, that's where this, 
there's a tension now. There's a split. There's a we've reached a fork in the road. And we're like, which way do we go? Do we just really keep hammering this traditional farming because we know that we can coax um, enough food to feed some people or, or 10 billion people? Or do we say, no, we actually need to go the agroecology route because we have to take into account basically just as much as our ability to feed 10 billion people, um, the idea that we're not harming the earth with our agricultural practices. That's the split that we're looking at right now while we're trying to figure out what 4.0 is going to be. Yeah, and it seems like, and Emily is way, way into this stuff with agroecology for years now, and Mm -hmm. it seems like it's really all about the soil and the devastating effects on the actual soil that uh, I guess the Green Revolution has has caused by all that manipulation. Mm-hmm. And she has made an effort just in our little backyard over the past, like, whatever, how long we've we been here, 14 years, mm-hmm. to reclaim that soil and to make it good soil again. And That's awesome. We've got great soil now, and it's uh, it takes a long time because so much damage is done over so many years. It's not the kind of thing where you can just be like, all right, we're going to stop doing that, and then the soil is going to be great again, right? Right. Um, it takes many, many years of really caring for that soil to get it back where it began or as close to it as possible. Yeah, and in some cases, too, when you're talking about what conventional in, uh, agriculture does to the soil, as far as, like, crop production is concerned— it's never going to get okay again. It's never going to come back. And so there's a process in conventional agriculture where you use up a plot of land mm-hmm. and you move on to the next one. And when you run out of land, you bring more cropland online into the food production sector. And that's what you do. You, you you use up land until you have to replace it by taking over more land. That's Ugh. the current iteration. Agroecology is like, you don't have to do that. If you just treat the soil like Emily, this is their motto, yeah. um, <laughs> you, you, it's going to be all good. Like, you, you, you don't have to keep replacing land with more land because you don't use up the land. You actually leave the land better off than it was before yeah. you started using it. That, to me, is the thing that just makes my eyes pop open and my heart just swell for agroecology is like you're actually improving the land. And there have been studies. I ran across a a study of a a place called um, White Oak Pastures down in, I can't remember where it is. It's like South Central Georgia, not too far from Albany. Um, And they have actually, they've hired independent researchers to come in and look at the environmental impact of what they do, which is regenerative grazing. And the the study turned up findings that literally made international news. That's how eye-opening the, what they found was. Yeah, so just a little backstory. Uh, regenerative oh – man, I knew I was going to do that. Re- <laughs> regenerative grazing is a very simple premise. Um, basically, don't let your livestock eat all the grass down to the nub mm-hmm. where it will probably die and then just move them on to another area to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, move them more often. They won't eat down to the nubs. Those plants and those grasses will grow back even better probably. Yeah. And you'll have, you know, you like you said, you won't be using up the land. So this study, they looked at, uh, they, they wanted to compare like the, the CO2 cost of industrial beef production, which is something that we've talked about before. But traditional grazing emits, and this is, just astounding and awful, uh, emits 33 pounds of CO2 to raise a single pound of meat. 
Isn't that nuts? Uh, it's nuts. So you go to plant-based meat, um, like a uh, like a Beyond situation, uh-huh. exactly. right? Yeah. Which I still haven't tried. I want to try that. That's good. Impossible and Beyond are both good. All right. So uh, these meat alternatives made from plants, they really reduce that to about three to f- three and a half to four pounds of CO2 for a sing- uh, single pound. But at Pretty White good. Oak, that's good. You're on the right track. But White mm-hmm. Oak is actually sequestering CO2. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. So if um, meat alternatives emit about three and a half kilograms or three and a half pounds of CO2 per pound of meat alternative, white oak pastures is raising beef, like like actual beef. And when they do, they are sinking, sequestering 3.5 pounds of CO2 for every pound of beef that's produced. They're, it's like having solar power and creating more energy than you use. Yep. You know. Exactly. Yeah, it's insane. These findings were, and they've been like looked at and studied and looked at again, and everybody's like, this can't make sense. Apparently, some of the um, meat alternative companies out there were like, you know, this is all wrong. This can't be right. And they were like, no, it's actually right. Regenerative, regenerative grazing produces livestock that actually capture carbon and store it. It's <laughs> insane. Like, what are you doing? We're just moving the cows a little more. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> it. And then they move them to another meadow and, and like when it's belly high and then they do it again. And like, here's the thing. The, the reason that everybody's not doing this already is because it's way more expensive to regener- regeneratively graze. Um, if you look at white oak pastures, you can order their stuff online. Um, it's very expensive. It's not ridiculously expensive. Like there's definitely like um, long established mail order beef companies that are Three, <laughs> four times so the price. You know what I mean? Yeah. It does sound gross. Mail but, order um, beef. Mail order beef. <laughs> but it, it's some of those companies are way more expensive, but it's still more than you're going to go pay if you just go to the grocery store and get whatever beef they have. But in, in buying that, if you can afford it, you're actually helping to save the earth. Um, it's, it's pretty impressive stuff. Well, yeah, and that also helps solve the issue if you need to feed uh, – however, 9 billion people, but in the next, you know, 30 years, one of the big issues is like, do we even have enough land to do that? Right. like, well, yeah, dummies, we might if we don't just use up land and move on to new land. Because that's a big criticism of regenerative grazing is it requires 2.5 times the land that conventional grazing does, which is why it's so much more expensive. But yeah, if if you're not using up the land and having to bring more land in as cropland, then that issue might not actually exist. That might not be a problem, right? Yeah. Pretty impressive. Uh, Super impressive. I think the last thing here, as far as future farming goes, is we need to hit on food waste, which is, I mean, if they could could reduce food waste by 30%, that would be a game changer for feeding the world. Yeah. I think right now uh, it takes a landmass larger than China to grow food that goes uneaten ultimately. Uneaten, yeah. the size of China. It's like it's hard to even talk about without getting like super upset. So food waste also needs to be an episode that we have to do, yeah, because it is just so mind-boggling. But from what I saw, up to fifty percent of the food that America produces is thrown away, or that Americans buy. Maybe uh, I'm not quite sure, but fifty percent in America, about thirty to fifty percent in the world overall. A ton of water is wasted. I saw as much as um, a quarter of the world's water is wasted 
through this wasted food or fresh water um, intake. Um, and if you can just dial back a, a significant portion of that food waste, um, not only are you going to save a lot of money and a lot of environmental harm, you're going to feed a lot of people. Because yeah. it's like you said earlier, our food, food supply, our food chain is globally interconnected. So we make enough food already for a lot of people, probably everybody. It's just some people go hungry because we waste so much food and we're terrible at distributing it equitably. If we can figure that out, we may not have a problem at all, and it's possible that agro-ecological um, farming could supply food for 10 billion right. people. That's a big one. There's studies underway right now to figure out just what kind of gap we're talking about between, uh, say, organic or agro-ecological crop yields and conventional crop yields. And for a long time, everybody's like, yeah, you just get way more food from conventional farming. And some people are actually doing the studies now, and they're finding like, yeah, that's true in some cases, not true in other cases. And if we can quantify exactly what the gap is, mm -hmm. we can figure out how to close that gap. And then, yeah, we can just use agroecology. Yeah, and I think this, you know, the fork in the road where we are, uh, hopefully what it'll look like is not a hard left turn or a hard right turn, mm -hmm. but maybe a gentle turn on both sides that eventually come back together down the road yeah. where there's a mix of both, where there is precision farming um, used in agroecology because they're not, I mean, I suppose there are some really back-to-basics agro-ecological uh, e farmers that you know, want to have an oxen pulling a plow. The Amish? <laughs> yeah, probably just them. Mm -hmm. Point is, they're they're into it, man. I mean, they don't mind the idea of a robot and and precision uh, weeding and stuff like that. Right. Uh, it's it's the these massive farms and all this waste is what they're trying to combat. So hopefully, they can there can be a marriage and that can be the best way forward. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm hoping too. Pretty cool stuff, man. Who knew? Great. I love it. Um, and we got two episode ideas out of it. So there you go. Uh, if you want to know more about the future of farming, just start reading about it. There's a lot of really interesting stuff out there. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, this is kind of fitting, actually. This is about hydrology. Uh, hey guys, I have a PhD in hydrology mm. and teach hydrology and water resources at a university. Mm. Uh, one of the misconceptions I'm constantly battling in my courses is that water is a renewable resource, which is something we said in the uh, episode on hydropower, uh, because it's only renewable if we use it as such. Mm -hmm. uh, I often use money analogies to teach this point to my students. Uh, imagine your, lo your local hydrologic water balance is like having a rather large inheritance and you are unable to ever work again or make money. Uh, as long as you live off the interest, you and your family can live forever without ever working. But if you spend the principal, you'll eventually run out of money. Uh, it's the same with water. If you only use the renewable water, you won't have an issue, as Josh noted. But if you lower lake levels, deplete groundwater, melt ice caps, you will eventually run out of renewable water. Uh, you might ask, but it'll just rain again, right? And that's true, but not enough to refill the pot or the interest to refill the bank account. Uh, hmm. The money isn't gone. It's just in someone else's pocket. Similarly, the water isn't gone. It's just in someone else's watershed or most likely the salty oceans, which we can't drink. Uh, that is Dr. Pete Whittington, uh, associate professor at Brandon University. Dr. Pete? 
Dr. Pete. Dr. Pete sounds like one of those people who still continue to insist that climate change is real, even though it's cold outside. <laughs> you know? You're right. Smarty pants, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Dr. Pete. We appreciate being set straight. Thank you. Um, and that is a, an excellent point. Um, yeah, I don't. I didn't mean to get across this idea that you know, just there's water everywhere, and we don't need to worry about water. No, I think you you got it mostly right. He said, <clears throat> "Good." Uh, I love hearing that. So, um, you got anything else from Dr. Pete? Nothing else. Okay. Well, then, everybody, if you want to get in touch with us, like Dr. Pete did, you can send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.